Our opening words this morning are from our hymnal. Come into the circle of love and justice. Come into the community of mercy, holiness, and health. Come and you shall know peace and joy. Our meditation this morning is appropriately enough titled, A Father's Day Prayer. This is by Kirk D. Lodeman Copeland. Let us praise those fathers who have striven to balance the demands of work, marriage, and children with an honest awareness of both joy and sacrifice. Let us praise those fathers who, lacking a good model for a father, have worked to become a good father. Let us praise those fathers who, by their own account, were not always there for their children, but who continue to offer those children, now grown, their love and support. Let us praise those fathers who, despite divorce, have remained in their children's lives. Let us praise those fathers whose children are adopted and whose love and support has offered healing. Let us praise those fathers who, as stepfathers, freely choose the obligation of fatherhood and earn their stepchildren's love and respect. Let us praise those fathers who have lost a child to death and continue to hold the child in their heart. Let us praise those men who have no children, but cherish the next generation as if they were their own. Let us praise those men who have fathered us in their roles as mentors and guides. Let us praise those men who are about to become fathers. May they openly delight in their children. And let us praise those fathers who have died, but live on in our memory and whose love continues to nurture us. And my first reading with you, again, is from Walt Whitman. Excerpts from one of his poems in Leaves of Grass. I tramp a perpetual journey. My signs are a rainproof coat and good shoes and a staff cut from the woods. No friend of mine takes his ease in my chair. I have no chair, nor church, nor philosophy. I lead no one to a dinner table or library or exchange. But each man and each woman of you, I lead upon a knoll. My left hand hooks you round the waist, and my right hand points to landscapes of continents and a plain public road. Not I, not anyone else can travel that road for you. You must travel it for yourself. It is not far. It is within reach. Perhaps you have been on it since you were born and did not know. Perhaps it is everywhere, on water and on land. This day before dawn, I ascended a hill and looked at the crowded heaven, and I said to my spirit, when we become enfolders of those orbs and the pleasure and the knowledge of everything in them, shall we be filled and satisfied then? And my spirit said, no, 
we level that lift to pass and continue beyond. You are also asking me questions, and I hear you. I answer that I cannot answer. You must find out for yourself. And my next reading is the very end of the long, the book of long poems called Four Quartets. And this one is from Little Gidding by T.S. Eliot. Excerpts from Little Gidding. What we call the beginning is often the end. And to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. Every phrase and every sentence is an end and a beginning. Every poem is an epitaph, and every action is a step to the block, to the fire, down the sea's throat or to an illegible stone, and that is where we start. A condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, when the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. End of the readings are just too many celebrations, if there can be such a thing. I'm so grateful to Eric for reading a lovely piece about Father's Day, of which I say Happy Father's Day. We have just been through Juneteenth, so I say hooray for Juneteenth and let it long let it rain. And solstice. Tomorrow morning is the winter, uh, summer solstice. So we have a multitude of things to celebrate today. And let's have as much celebration as we possibly can. This is the last Sunday that I have a chance to read to you from one of my major heroes, political philosopher Hannah Arendt. Arendt says this of power, quote, Power is actualized only when word and deed have not parted company, where words and are not empty and deeds are not brutal, where words are not used to violate and destroy, but to establish relations and create new realities. Where, if not here, in religious community, is power to be established, is, is power to be used to establish relations and create new identities. We are all relations here. It is our connections with one another and with our values that make this church different from other groups. It is here in our religious community that power is created, the power of people acting in concert. This power is not the same as force or intimidation or coercion. Arendt would call these violence, 
very different from power. Power for her has to do with people in community, in the active life that we have in common. I want to expand that a little bit today to include personal power, meaning again, not coerciveness nor the ability to intimidate, but rather strength of character and integrity. Our first reading from number 46 from Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass gives us a poetic view of this kind of integrity. The poet cannot find answers for anyone but himself. He says, not I, not anyone else can travel that road for you. You must travel it for yourself. And the poet asks then if he can ever be filled and satisfied when he finally knows all pleasure and all knowledge. And his spirit then answers that he must even then continue beyond. Whitman characterizes the universe as a road, as many roads, as roads for traveling souls. And so he tramps a perpetual journey, not able to answer the questions for others, but able to be their companion on the universal road. Power and integrity, both personal and communal, is in that companioning of one another. And it seems to me it is in the intentional companioning of others that the power of the ministry exists. The professional minister does not have the answers. You know that very well from the many occasions when I've had to say in response to your questions, I don't know. I don't know why people get sick or are in the wrong place at the wrong time, or why bad things happen to good people, or vice versa. But the minister sticks with those questions and with the questioner, and together they struggle toward their answers. In this struggle also, power is created for all of the participants. The religious community is one where these questions Partial answers and struggles are appropriate and recognized. If we can't engage in the search for truth and meaning here, then where on earth can we do so? I truly believe that it is this grappling with ultimate questions that creates a religious community and gives it integrity and a reason for being. There is inevitably some anxiety in almost any new relationship. In the case of a minister and a congregant, some of that anxiety can be assuaged by the tradi traditional and expected forms of interaction that we can have. For example, I can be the one who, in Walt Whitman's words, leads you upon a knoll, my left hand hooking you round the waist, my right hand pointing to landscapes of continents and of plain public roads, the roads that you must then travel for yourself. Now, since you've heard my sermons for several months now, you know that the imaginary landscape I am pointing to is one of ideals 
values, and action for ethical and spiritual growth, ways in which we can put our principles and values as Unitarian Universalists into action. For some persons, the problem is that the plain public road is there for you to travel by yourself, as Whitman says. No one else can do it for you. You ask questions, he says, and no one, not I nor anyone else, can answer them for you. You must find out for yourself. I can point out the landscape and the road, give you my ideas and resources, but then you must put them into practice. Some of you who are here are, have been willing to engage in ministry that challenged your perceptions of what to expect in ministerial style and leadership. You chose to stay with the congregation because you realized that the congregation is the people, and that the people go on and on regardless of the minister who serves you. You supported the congregation's ministries that we have together by your presence on Sundays, by your financial contributions, and by your willingness to participate in the programs of the congregation. Others, I'm sorry to say, have sat out this first year of interim process. And hopefully, with your invitation, they will return for the second year. In addition to the relationship that we had as minister and congregation, I sought to engage you in specific areas of interim ministry, acknowledging that the tasks are yours to perform as I function as your guide. My evaluation of your engagement with these tasks is available to you in my report to the congregation that I wrote for the May 16th meeting of First UU, and I hope that you will read it if you happen to miss it then. For today, I want to swoop through my assessment of your work this year. First, you paid attention to your history and your dreams when the transition team and I set up the timeline of the congregation. Remember, it was on the windows in the foyer. The transition team used your responses when they created their homilies about the patterns of your past. And some of you heard my sermon on my perceptions of your history as you noted it on the timeline. And that brings us to another important task that this congregation paid attention to. You knew that it was essential that you create a new identity for yourselves. In his work with you in early uh, 2009, consultant Dr. Peter Steinke urged you to, one, create your mission as a congregation, and two, come to terms with your governance. Governance meaning how decisions are made here. And as you began work at once, and, and you began work at once to plan for determining your mission and for establishing policy-based governance. Both of these were underway even before I arrived here in August 2009. And soon, and you are soon to see the fruit of both of these efforts. During the service on July 18th, 
the board will unveil the mission that many of you worked on with your bridge, bridge to the Future participation. And the board is already launching itself headlong into policy-based governance, thereby making its functions much more clear and establishing closer ties with the congregation that elected it. Consultant Peter Steinke also urged you to build better community. That was the third of his suggestions. The transition team and I worked hard to engage you in a covenant of healthy relations. In other words, a set of promises on how you treat each other. And that covenant is now part of your lives, your community. You see at the top of your order of service, each week, a line from the covenant so that you have something to think about for the week. It's a way to make this a living promise for all, for all congregants. And wasn't it fine last Sunday when we recognized those new members and we all said the covenant together? Oh, it gave me chills. I hope it was, I hope it was good for you as well. It was a wonderful culmination that I felt as a lot of work that will go on for a long time. You also worked hard this year to understand and clarify the role of the minister, as Peter Steinke urged you to do in his fourth, uh, his fourth um, suggestion to you. Along with that, you sought to clarify and expand the role of congregational leaders, another of the tasks that I guide you through as your interim minister. And once again, you are ahead of me. Way before I arrived on the scene here, the board had tasked the, the Leadership Development Committee, a.k.a. the Nominating Committee, to cultivate new leadership. And you know that it is happening. One way you know that is because we had too many people who wanted to be in leadership roles this year. How can you have too many people? Well, <laughs> it, it's a good thing to have, even though not everybody gets to serve at the same time. But the fact that more and more people find this uh, congregation, continue to find it worthy of their leadership, is a very, very strong indication. And what about relations with the Unitarian Universalist Association and our Southwest District, Southwest Conference? One example of your progress, many of you, it's very, it's very heartwarming to know this, many of you have contributed your own funds to support staff and elected leaders to attend the General Assembly of the Association in a few days. You recognize how important it is to be connected with the UUA and with other UU congregations. And so, you are working and succeeding in another of those tasks of interim ministry. Now, when your next interim minister, the Reverend Ed Brock, arrives to serve you during your second year of transition time, you will already know where you are going and where to put your energy. A suggestion or two. 
Presently, our path to membership is not working as well as we would like. We have so many guests who rise on Sunday mornings, but we know that not all are finding the path to become a part of this congregation. And we also know that as much as um, you have worked and as much as the leadership worked last fall on behalf of the stewardship campaign, there are still areas that need a lot of work and a lot of growth and a lot of leadership. What great places to pour out your efforts and ideas in the coming year. Well, that was a wild swoop through the year. And now, here we are at the end of our time in ministry together, and we must find a way to end our present relationship. Each year I struggle to be more effective at saying goodbye and to find resources that will help us. You'd think I'd get better at it, but I don't. An image that keeps me going through the difficult times that I experience in congregational leadership is the image that T.S. Eliot employs in his last words of the poem titled Little Gidding, which is included in his long work, Four Quartets. You'll remember his image as the last phrases of this morning's second reading. Eliot borrowed the first part of this line from the words of mystical poet Julian of Norwich, who lived during a time when women's writings were not published. She adopted the name Julian, uh, I believe, I'm not sure of this, but so that her, her name would not be clearly a woman's name. These words from her, And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And then Eliot continues from his own mystical heart. When the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. This stole that I haven't been wearing every Sunday, but I wear it, I used to wear it almost every Sunday, was given to me at the 10th anniversary of my ordination, and it is now 17 years older than that, and showing wear. I try to keep it as nice as I can, have it dry clean, but you can see that the sweat of many a Sunday is eating away, is eating away the fabric. <laughs> and uh, I must find sometime a craftsperson to fix that for me. But the stole displays the two symbols that Eliot mentions, the flaming chalice on one end and the rose on the other. Eliot gives me the image of the fire, an element which can bring to the world pain and utter devastation when it is out of control. But fire can at the same time be a symbol of hearth and home, of caring and light. Fire can symbolize the light of truth, the warmth of love, the fire of community. 
And Elliot gives me the image of the rose, which, like fire, can also be a creature of pain and injury when we seize it by the thorns. But at the same time, the rose can be a symbol of beauty, uniqueness, passion, and depth, an image in many cultures of love and compassion and complexity. The fire's destructive capacity is, in Eliot's image, shaped and enfolded into the rose shape of love. The capacity of the fire to hurt and of the rose to injure are still there. They are not negated. Both are affirmed in what they are, fire and rose. And at the same time, they are affirmed in something more, something powerful, full of power, an image that sustains me and reminds me of what I seek to be as I minister in love to congregations. And all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well, when the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. So may it be. Amen. And alleluia. And now that leads me to um, our ceremony of leave-taking. In your insert in the program, you will find the ceremony of leave-taking. And I was chair of the interim task force last year and would like to take this opportunity to lead the congregation in a ceremony of leave-taking. Will the congregation please rise as able and please say with me your part as written. We the Congregation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin have joined with you, Janet Elizabeth Newman, as we dwelt together in peace, as we sought the truth in freedom and in love, as we ministered to our shared joys and sorrows, and as we followed the precepts of our free faith. Though our paths now part, the congregation will continue to walk together in the spirit of unity, peace, truth, and love. I acknowledge the special ministry that has existed and still exists between us during our brief time together. I commend you to the good offices of your next interim ministry, Minister the Reverend Ed Brock, and to the lay leadership, which so ably will care for you during the next year and for years to come. Together, we pledge to continue our search for truth, love, and justice, ministering to ourselves and others, confirming our liberal religious tradition and vision. May we be a blessing to one another, and together be a blessing to the world. And our closing words are once again from our hymnal. Keep alert.
Stand firm in your faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So may it be. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.